Many years ago, a group of Christians in Scotland named Covenanters were terribly persecuted. On one occasion, they were worshiping secretly in a valley when they suddenly heard the sound of hoofs beating and clanking armor. It was soldiers headed their way. Where nowhere to hide, they simply sat down and prayed for God's protection. Well, it just so happened that on that day, there was an unusual amount of mist and clouds hanging on the side of the mountain. And at just the right time, the clouds descended and covered them right where they were worshiping. And though the soldiers rode within 500 feet of the worshipers, none of them were ever seen. The clouds, like a curtain, hid these worshipers until the soldiers left and they were able to worship again. God had providentially protected his people in a remarkable way. Well, as we come to chapter 8 in the book of Esther this morning, the looming expectation is that God will now providentially protect his people throughout Persia in a similar way. The Jews, you remember, had been under threat ever since chapter 3 when Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had arranged, authorized, and announced his plan to annihilate the Jews in just less than a year. And so as the chapter ended, we were left anticipating what was going to happen, the last chapter, uh, after Haman, you'll remember, was found out. His evil plans were exposed by Queen Esther And the king promptly had the enemy of the Jews executed. Justice had been served. And remember, it happened with an ironic twist. Well, now again, we are anticipating what will come next. If their adversary is ruined, surely the final rescue of the Jews is coming next. Well, as we just heard in the reading of chapter 8, that is exactly what happened. Or at least it's what was set in motion by the two main characters of the story. Queen Esther and her cousin Mordecai, of course, both of them Jews. As they made it possible for the Jews to protect themselves from the planned persecution that was to come. However, as we read this scene in the same way we've been reading this story all along with eyes of faith, looking for the hidden hand of God... We will see again that he is the one who orchestrates everything perfectly so that it turns out this way. Though he's never seen or or named, the story is told in such a way to show that God is clearly working behind the scenes, moving forward his purposes, and fulfilling his promises to his people. An encouragement for the readers of every age, that when God's people are protected in this godless world, God is right there. Whether it's in the past or present, whether it's in biblical history or church history, remarkable rescues, surprising salvations, extraordinary escapes, these don't just happen. No, they are clearly the providential protection of God. Just like we see here in chapter 8, which begins by first of all highlighting how the Jews were given the power to protect themselves in verses 1 to 8. So again, verse 1 we read, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. 
And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So it says on the very same day that Haman, the enemy of the Jews, was executed in chapter seven, two Jews, Esther and Mordecai, were given everything he owned and everything he had aspired to. Another ironic reversal of fortune. One of the main literary themes you'll remember of the book. We saw it in chapter 5 and 6. We see it here and we'll see it next week as we end in chapter 9 and 10. Haman wanted to be exalted in the empire and instead Mordecai took his place in chapter 6. While Mordecai was to be executed on a stake and instead Haman took his place in chapter 7. Well, now we see that even after his demise, the tables continued to turn on Haman. Notice his property, his power, and his prestige were all given to his enemies. I was thinking it's kind of like the old bachelor who wants to stick it to the government by cheating on his taxes, only to be left without a, a, a family or a will after his death and leaves all the money, all of his taxes to the government. Instead, Proverbs 11:7 says, "When the wicked dies, his hope will perish, and the expectation of wealth perishes too." And again, this, this can't just be a, a lucky coincidence. This has to be God's hidden providence. Directing the king to give Esther and Mordecai all of these things, again, the very things that Haman, their enemy, was living for. And yet more was still needed if this disaster was to be averted in the end, less than a year. Though Haman was now dead, his edict to exterminate God's people lived on. And so Esther, we see, spoke to the king, pleading for the protection of her people. Verse 5, and she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the things seem right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Now, notice two things we, we see here. First of all, there's the cleverness of the queen, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But we also recognize here the callousness of the king. Once his anger was abated at the death of Haman, it seems as though Ahasuerus had no further thought about the future of the Jews. It seemed to just slip his mind entirely. It's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? How unfeeling and selfish would you have to be to forget so quickly that there's still this scheduled genocide threatening your wife and her people? It's almost unbelievable. Except the same heartless indifference to suffering, the same kind of callousness to even a genocide is something we've seen in our own recent history, haven't we? Whether it's the killing fields of Cambodia or the body-strewn streets of Rwanda or the gas chambers of Nazi Germany, sadly, these are not uncommon horrors in this godless world, the callousness of the fallen heart. Well, Esther understood this. She'd, she'd been with Ahasuerus now for maybe five years and understanding by now how her narcissistic husband worked, what she does is she, she cleverly speaks to him here. Did you notice with one deferential clause after another, does it please the king? If you do this, if it, if it favors the king, all these things, she piles up 
ultimately putting the self-interest of the king at the center. And especially how he, he certainly wouldn't want to have a wife who is distraught. One author notes, Esther made no reference to right or wrong, justice and injustice. Those were not categories that registered with the empire. All she could do is to appeal to Ahasuerus' own self-interest as it related to her. If you really love me and want me to be happy, you have to grant my request, right? I think it's a reminder that sometimes God's people need to be strategic in order to save themselves in this godless world. Never sinning, of course, but at times appealing to the self-interest of those who would do them harm. And that seemed to work here. Not able to legally revoke his former edict, Ahasuerus gave Esther and Mordecai the ability to counteract it as they pleased. So verse seven, that King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And so with that power now, again, he can't revoke this former command, but they can counteract it. Now given that power, which ironically is the very thing again that Haman had and desired so badly, the very same power that had given him the ability to order the Jews' destruction in chapter three, well now with that same power, the Jews could protect themselves, protect themselves from this edict that wouldn't go away. Which takes us to the next scene in the story and how the Jews were given the permission to protect themselves. Starting in verse nine, the, king, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the, 30, uh, the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials and the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. Why does he have to repeat all of this information? Well, it's interesting. The language is almost identical to what we see in chapter three, verse 12, where Haman sent out his edict across the empire, giving royal permission to persecute and pillage the Jews in a year. It's almost identical, the wording. The main difference being that this one went out, it says at the end, also to the Jews in their script and language. And that's because this command concerned the Jews, specifically their future protection. And he mentions the 23rd day of the month of Sivan time reference. That has unique significance. This was exactly 70 days after Haman had made his original edict. And that remarkably mirrors the 70-year captivity of God's people that they had just been through. Another lucky coincidence or maybe another act of God's hidden providence. If the Lord had, had providentially protected the Jewish nation from that earlier 70-year existential threat, how did he do it? By the edict of the Persian king Cyrus, who allowed them to return to their home in Jerusalem in Ezra 1. 
Certainly, he can providentially deliver the Jewish nation now from a similar threat by the edict of the Persian official Mordecai, who we see had his own plan for his people. How exactly would they be delivered from destruction? Well, verse 10 to 12 tells us. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letter by mounting couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods." On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So the way that Mordecai counteracted the irrevocable edict for the Jews' extermination was essentially to level the playing field, giving the king's authorization to defend themselves. And again, maybe you noticed Mordecai used the exact same words that Haman had used earlier. In chapter 3, 13, he says to kill, to destroy, to annihilate. It's yet another ironic reversal of fortune. For 70 days, the enemy of the Jews had royal permission to persecute and pillage the Jews, including the children and women. But now the tables had been turned as the king gave the Jews royal permission to defend their lives and take vengeance on their enemies, including children and women. Now, not too many are going to risk with the people who've been given that equal prerogative, will they? I mean, this almost sounds like the, the mutually assured destruction policies of the Cold War era, right? If opposing nations can both annihilate each other, maybe it will keep the peace. Now, without, without giving away the end, we'll, we'll get to the end next week, it should be noted that later in chapter 9, when the Jews do defend themselves, it is only the enemy men who are destroyed, most likely opportunistic soldiers who still had the gall to attack them. It's also interesting that though the Jews had permission to plunder their goods, the goods of their enemies, just as the initial edict had been given against the Jews, they didn't do that either. They didn't plunder. Rather, they just stuck to self-defense. Because self-defense was something that God had permitted elsewhere in the Old Testament, like Nehemiah 4, for example. And all of this means that Mordecai's plan here, unlike Haman's plan, was righteous. Yes, he was mimicking Haman's words, but not his wickedness. His people were avenging themselves only when attacked. And so we read in verse 13, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all the peoples and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. This was defense. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's services, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Now this is incredible. The very horses that two months earlier had delivered the decree for the destruction of the Jews were now being used to deliver the decree for the defense of the Jews. Another ironic reversal and a valuable example of God's hidden work of providence and how he 
provides protection, yes, in, in an ironic way and in an incredible way, and yet also in somewhat of an ordinary way. You know, sometimes God protects his people extraordinarily by uh, parting the Red Sea or by making the sun stand still or by closing the lion's mouths. But most often, God protects his people, you and me, by ordinary means, just as he did here. Yes, it came about in an extraordinary way, but it was simply the permission to defend themselves that was given. But there's still more. Finally, we see in the, in the last scene, verses 15 to 17, that not only were the Jews given the power and the permission to protect themselves, also they were given the prominence to do so. Verse 15, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Replacing his, his sackcloth and ashes with royal robes and a crown, Mordecai was honored in the very way that Haman had so desperately desired. He was being treated like a king. Another ironic reversal of fortune in the chapter that caused the whole city of Susa, the Jews in every province and city that the king's edict reached to rejoice and feast. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city where the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. You can just imagine this celebration. I was thinking of the old uh, film footage from cities of allied nations after Germany and Japan were defeated in World War II. You've probably seen some of those pictures or that film footage. And there's just people who are running out into the streets and they're cheering and hugging and kissing and dancing. They'd been delivered from destruction. Yet again, we see here that in this case, it was a godless celebration. Did you notice there's no mention of the one who protected them? There's no praise going to God here. Just another indication as we've seen throughout the story that the Jews who had remained in Persia rather than going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple as God had commanded, how they had been conformed in many ways to their pagan culture, unable to see God's hand in this and give him the glory. Unable to do what Psalm 511 we read earlier says, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. It seems that they had not yet grasped this. They still didn't understand the spiritual significance of what had happened. But notice the difference that their deliverance made to the society around them as the chapter ends in the middle of verse 17. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is the only time in the Old Testament where a group of people declared themselves Jews or became Jews, as the NIV puts it, which may just mean that they were pretending to be Jews. This now prominent people given royal permission to take vengeance on their enemies. 
Not many would mess with them now, a final display of God's providential protection, as well as a final reversal. Remember in chapter 2 how Esther would not tell anyone she was a Jew because of fear. Well, now the tables had turned and all these Persians are becoming Jews or declaring themselves Jews because of fear of them. Incredible. Another incredible reversal. However, there very well could be a little more going on here than just that. Some suggesting that this may have even been somewhat of a revival in Persia. Many possibly becoming Jewish proselytes, or at least God-fearers. It wouldn't be the first time. Think of how King Darius acknowledged the living God across the entire empire after the Lord's providential protection of his prophet Daniel in Daniel 6. Or how Nineveh repented and called out to God after Jonah's deliverance in Jonah 2, 3. A similar turn of events here would be a fitting finale to this story, to be sure. Another incredible, remarkable reversal and turn of events. Persians, pagans all around the empire, possibly becoming true Jews or God-fearers. Years ago, the English ship, the Britannia, was sailing from London to the West Indies, and on board were a group of missionaries who were hoping to uh, reach the people of that island with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, in the middle of the voyage, a pirate ship was suddenly spotted, and it was bearing down on them. And as soon as it was in in range, the the pirates flung their, their grappling irons onto the merchant ship to board it. But just as they were about to throw it, their ship lurched and their chains fell into the sea. Trying it again, the very same thing occurred. And so frustrated, the, the pirate captain ordered to fire on the ship until she sank. But amazingly, every shot missed the mark. And when the smoke finally cleared to the pirates' surprise, the merchant ship was gone. A strong gust of wind had come at just the right time to propel them forward out of reach of their enemies. Years later, a merchant captain came to visit these same missionaries on the island of St. Thomas and explained that he was the former pirate captain that had attacked them. He then told the missionaries that the remarkable way that they had been rescued led him to think seriously about his wicked life and eventually led him to put his faith in Christ. Another example of the encouraging truth exhibited here in chapter 8 and all over Holy Scriptures that when God's people are protected in this godless world, God is there. He's always, always working behind the scenes to move forward his perfect purposes, sometimes in surprising ways and to fulfill his precious promises to his people in every age. As Psalm 12, 5 says, Because the poor are plundered and the needy grown, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. Exactly what we've seen in the story. Some of you maybe know what that's like, to be despised for your identification with Christ. So be encouraged that the same providential protection demonstrated here in this story can take place in your life today 
God working behind the scenes to deliver you. Or maybe some of you know even what it's like to be in danger because of your faith. I do. This last week, I was just telling someone, it came to mind that uh, a year before we came here, I was, my life was threatened <laughs> by someone uh, because I'm a minister of Christ. Uh, if you want to know more about that story, I'll tell you another time. <laughs> but certainly many Christians around the world face this very thing, face these dangers every day. And so what an encouragement, again, to see God's providential protection in this scene. If God could, could perfectly orchestrate everything to turn out just right for the Jews and their protection, surely he can orchestrate everything to turn out in our lives for our deliverance today. But even if he doesn't, even if God allows his people to be maligned and mistreated, even if he chooses not to protect his people from threats and tribulations, one thing we know for certain, our final deliverance is guaranteed from every enemy. Now in Jesus Christ, we have the promise of the final victory. He has promised to protect us spiritually until that day. To protect every believer from our greatest enemies, from the power of Satan and sin. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a profound difference that providential protection makes in the lives of every believer. A far more significant spiritual protection that can spur us on to be faithful till the end. When John Chrysostom was brought before the Roman Emperor Arcadius, he was threatened with banishment for preaching Christ, to which he replied, you cannot banish me, for the whole world is my father's house. But I will kill you, said the emperor. You cannot for my life is hid in Christ with God. Then I will take away your treasures, the emperor threatened. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven, and my heart is there also. Then I will drive you away from your friends, and you will have no one left. No, you cannot, asserted John, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you can never separate me from. I defy you, there is nothing you can do to harm me. Friends, that is the ultimate spiritual protection that we have from our almighty God, 
who loves to providentially protect his people in many ways. And I'm sure if we had time, we could just tell story after story of how God has done that in our own lives. And yet ultimately, we look forward to that final day where he will deliver us from all of our enemies. And we will have peace forever. Let's thank him for that promise. Lord, again, we're thankful for this story of Esther, the history recorded of how you providentially work to protect your people at that time. And what a helpful reminder that is for us that you can do the same today, protecting us from our enemies. But most of all, it is a reminder of the greater protection you give us over our spiritual enemies now in Jesus Christ in this church age. And that final protection, that final deliverance, that final victory that will be ours when Christ comes again. And we will reign with him forever in his kingdom of peace. May that hope give us the the grace we need, the courage we need to remain faithful, come what may, as we give you praise, our almighty, faithful God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.